Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. We don't need to go to a fourth generation corn farmer and say, do you know a flat or hurt corn crop? That's my view. Hey, everyone. That was Kyle Hauptman, NCUA board vice chair last week, Thursday at the NCUA board meeting where the board voted on a request for information and comment on climate related financial risk. And that to me was one of the highlights. And this podcast is going to be about the board's positions on this. And as I sit here getting ready to record it, I'm reminded of someone at NCUA who once said about giving a speech, there's the speech you've prepared, there's the speech you gave, and there's the speech that you believe you gave. So I've got some thoughts in my head on what I might say relative to this. I'm not sure which of those will make it into this recording because a lot of what the board members said themselves is what I want to share with you today. And that's because they are requesting comment a 60-day notice for comment on something that I think of all the things that credit unions can comment on, this is one that I think you should comment on because I think many of the questions are loaded. I will say that during the board presentation, they talked about why they want to do a request for comment. They really didn't talk about the questions. And as far as I can remember, this may be a new path for NCUA, or at least an expanded path. This request for comment has 38 questions, none of which were specifically talked about at the board meeting. And some of them you may agree with, some of you may not agree with, but some of them I think are a bit loaded. And some of them I think kind of go a little bit overboard from where I sit in my mind relative to what a regulator should do and my view on what the real climate related risks are. Of course, that's just my view. Most importantly, this was an example, I think of good work by the NCUA board, because as you heard there in the snippet that I gave you, board member, vice chairman, Kyle Hauptman voted against this. Chairman Harper voted for this and What you're going to hear is that board member and former chairman Rodney Hood voted for it, but he also stated that he could easily have sided with Kyle Hauptman, and he explains why he decided to vote for this, and he also tries to do a little bit of negotiation at the end. My point being, you have Todd sitting on the left, you have Hauptman sitting on the right, and you have Hood, who is a Republican, so generally speaking on the right, who provided the second vote here for Harper based on a commitment he had previously made. And I'm reminded of when I was at NCUA and current chairman Todd Harper was sitting in the Office of Public and Congressional Affairs. And he taught me a little bit about politics in telling me that when he was at Senator Paul Sarbanes' staff, that when they wanted to get something decided, they had a grid that they had up on the board. And one side was the left, one side was the right, and in the middle were the swing votes. And that over his time assisting Senator Sarbanes, 
the middle disappeared and it got harder and harder to achieve things. You see that in the world we live in today, politics wise. Personally, I think we're too divided, whether you're on the left, whether you're on the right, or whether you were at where I'm at in the middle, there's not enough politicians that are in the middle. So if you look at how this played out from the board perspective, it was a good dialogue and you had someone on the right vote for the middle so someone on the left could get a proposal out that they wanted to get out. Now, you can debate. I think there's many artful questions in this, but I think it's very important for credit unions to opine. And without further ado, I am going to rely heavily on some of the recordings from board members again, because I want you to see there are three thoughtful positions on this. And you may agree with one, two or portions of all three, but it's a good demonstration of the NCUA board doing good work although it's on a topic that that I'm not a big fan of. All right, I'm going to come up next with a statement from Chairman Todd Harper. This Saturday is also Earth Day, an annual event highlighting the importance of protecting the environment. So there is no better time than now for the NCUA board to act on this important matter. As a regulator and insurer, the NCUA has a duty to ensure that institu the institutions it oversees remain resilient against all material risks. Those risks include climate-related financial risks. This request for information is essential to furthering our understanding of these issues and their implications for the overall resiliency of individual credit unions, the vibrancy of the credit union system, and the strength of the National Credit Union Share Insurance Fund itself. Climate change continues to accelerate and the costs of climate-related natural disasters are rising, often hitting disadvantaged communities the hardest. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the United States experienced 20 separate billion dollar weather and climate related disasters across the United States in 2021, causing more than $156 billion in damage. In 2022, there were an estimated $15 billion plus disaster events, costing in excess of $171 billion or $16 billion more than the year before, making it the eighth straight year with 10 or more billion dollar plus events. And an analysis by the research nonprofit Climate Central found that between 1917 and 2021, the nation experienced a billion dollar plus disaster every 18 days on average, compared to 82 days on average between such events in the 1980s. Moreover, in a, an NCUA research note released yesterday by our Office of Chief Economist, that report found that roughly one in four of all federally insured credit unions are located in communities classified as having a relatively high or very high risk of experiencing the negative effects due to natural hazards. Specifically, the research showed that 25% of credit unions located in communities with a high or very high risk of experiencing adverse outcomes from natural hazards accounted for 34% of the system's uh, wide assets. So it's a disproportionate number there. And that's about $750 billion total that are based in these areas. A report also found that minority depository institutions face a substantially higher risk than the credit union system as a whole. And this is notable, credit unions most at risk of negative outcomes due to natural hazards tend to be located in coastal areas, particularly in California, Texas, and Florida. These three states account for 11% of credit unions located in communities with elevated risk and 22% of the credit union assets. 
Floods, droughts, wildfires, blizzards, hurricanes, tornadoes, and other climate-related events damage or destroy homes, farms, small businesses, vehicles, and vital infrastructure like roads, bridges, levees, and sewer systems that are connecting these homes, these farms, and small businesses to each other. This damage has a cost, including to federally insured credit unions that finance such house purchases and member small business projects. With this request for information, the NCUA is interested in better understanding stakeholders' views and experiences on climate-related financial risks. Commenters are encouraged to discuss any relevant issues they believe the NCUA board should consider about the financial risks associated with climate. This includes, but is not limited to, risks posed or stemming from issues around fields of membership, lending, investments, other assets, deposits, underwriting standards, insurance coverage, liquidity, and capital. Anyone who's a stakeholder, those within the credit union system and interested parties outside of it, is encouraged to provide the NCUA with comments. It's important that the NCUA understand any potential risks extreme weather events may have on the credit union system and individual credit union balance sheets. The answers we receive may allow us to discern what tools credit unions would like to have to assist them in effectively monitoring, managing, and mitigating climate-related risks, financial risks. And I really do want to ask staff, as you're going through, you built some marvelous tools. You talked about it earlier, the ASET tool. Um, uh, Cecil, too. I was going to say, I was about to go to Cecil, Cecil's spreadsheet. Our job, if we can help give credit unions, particularly small credit unions, the tools they need to manage these, we will move the ball a long way in the credit union system. So I do ask that you keep an open mind and look for those opportunities as you're reviewing those comments. Finally, it's worth noting that the NCUA's request for information is for informational purposes only. Responses to this request for information will not be used as part of the current NCUA examination and supervision program. Moreover, I want to assure both of my fellow board members, and I know that they, I, that I would fully agree with them, if there were a subsequent change in agency policy and supervision related to climate-related financial risks, that change would be agreed upon by the entire board, similar to any other policy change we would make. That concludes my remarks. I now recognize the vice chairman. Okay, a lot there from Chairman Harper. I'll provide a few comments before we hear from Vice Chair Hauptman. So Todd referenced all material risks that they're responsible for making sure that NCUA considers all of those. This request for comment is implying that climate change is a material risk. I'm not necessarily certain that I would agree with that, but the fact that they're asking questions, I think, could be viewed as good. But give an inch and they may take a foot. I think ultimately when Todd gets a second Board member that there will be some guidance, there will be some policy, there will be some regulation. Chairman Harper mentioned that before there was a change, it would be agreed upon by this entire board, which I believe may have been what was promised to board member Hood to get his vote, that it be clarified that this is just a request for information. And while Chairman Harper indicated that a policy would always come towards the board. I don't necessarily agree with that. That may be his 
Mo, that might be what he does as chairman, but the chairman of the board has the ability to issue guidance on his or her own. So a future chairman would be able to, or Chairman Harper, would be able to issue supervisory guidance uh, under his signature. Now he can seek the input of the other board members or not. But any guidance that comes out does not necessarily have to come back to the board. I believe he is committing to this group that he would bring it back before he would issue it. And that was probably a deal cut in order to get a second vote to get this out. Why do they want to get it out? A, because Todd believes in it. And B, it's a big, a big thing for the Biden administration. So that's a little bit of the, the background of the nuts and bolts of it. And next up, we have Vice Chairman Kyle Houtman. I know it's a lot of effort for the RFI together deciding on the 38 questions. I understand why Chairman Harper convened that working group on climate financial risk. I understand why an insurer like NCUA would examine this very important topic. Natural disasters and massive damage associated with them happens every year. I grew up in two places. Both of them are islands in the Atlantic Ocean. The reason I lived in those two places is my dad's 30 years in the National Park Service. One was a national park, one was a national seashore. We talked about that. In his efforts to preserve the national seashore in particular, which got pummeled routinely by hurricanes northeast, physically changed the shape of the island, his, to do his job of preserving the national seashore for the American public, to protect the natural environment, and to reduce the loss, damage to property, and loss of life. One of his biggest obstacles to do those things were government policies, including federal government policies. I'll get to that in a second. So I know, I also know that today's vote is technically just about NCUA publishing a request for information. RFIs are a good faith method to gather information that may or may not even result in any concrete actions. In fact, other agencies have put out similar RFIs that as of now have not resulted in any action. So I get it. This RFI may not result in any action at all, much less anything harmful. I can even think of some narrowly targeted positive results, such as, what he mentioned, sir, the new business of charging stations and gas stations. I guess they're, they're quite expensive, right? You said two, four thousand bucks. They can range up to about $8,000. Yeah. So the gas station obviously wants to get all the cars stopping there and buying overpriced Doritos and stuff at the store. So the charging station, they're expensive. So there's a new business that didn't exist, might be alone for an EV charging station. That did not exist. And places like California may be more common. And I know if I was an examiner, I would be more comfortable if I understood the new ter terminology and new financial products and new business lines. And I'd also be more comfortable knowing that other examiners are dealing with the same thing at other credit cards. Um, we had a situation where one of my pet interests in blockchain technology to allow us state charter credit union raised my brows with some of the things they were doing. Our people went there, the state regulator was in the room, learned about what the CEO was doing. And I personally, she's very on top of it, in my opinion. And they said, well, okay, not only is this not a concern, this is very interesting stuff. It's, it's, it's doing things that are faster, better, cheaper, more secure, but CEO, can you help us? train other people because there are probably other credit unions, you know, who are not as forward looking as right. This, this is going to come up, right? I get it hundred percent. I just want to be very clear about that. I'm here to state that the RFI might wind up being beneficial for all parties, credit unions, us. Essentially, I think there's some ways this can go well, but also quite a few ways this can unintentionally wind up doing harm to both the share insurance fund and credit union members. I'm referring to the broader effort, not necessarily the RFI itself. I'm going to vote no for the following reasons. One, those closest to these natural disasters and changing markets are best positioned to understand and manage those risks. We in the D.C. area 
don't need to tell folks in Puerto Rico that they get hurricanes. We've already had situations where, let's say, a credit union, Puerto Rico, for example, credit union is deciding on a loan to a member affected by a natural disaster. And the credit union employees themselves, CEO and lending officer, lost their homes in a natural disaster. And the office they're meeting in, the credit union office, was also rendered uninhabitable for a period of time. I feel that the people in that room have a better understanding than those of us in this room. Two, I have four, by the way. The history of unintended consequences of government interference in private markets. It so happens, there's an easy example here, National Flood Insurance Program. It's a useful comparison because NFIP is the one government program which solely exists to manage risks associated with severe weather events. You work on the Hill, NFIP has become a political football with bipartisan agreement that something should change and that the program started in the 60s fails at both of its four missions, reducing disruption and protecting the taxpayer. It was created with the good intentions of A, providing flood insurance at appropriate prices that protect the taxpayer, and B, reduce unnecessary flood damage. Well, NFIP um, has lost over $50 billion that it now owes the U.S. Treasury taxpayer. Any insurance commissioner in this country, all 50 states, would shut this program down for violating all of its rules by quite a bit. And regarding the other thing, reducing damage from floods, NFIP has been widely criticized by environmental groups like the Sierra Club for subsidizing continual unsafe building in flood-prone areas, thereby increasing the loss of life and property damage, such as the history of well-intentioned government efforts involving weather-related risks, and for that matter, other risks like mortgage subsidies. Three, potential harm to credit union members. So the only reason to put the RFI out is because there's some chance that someday NCUA may take some action. That future action could manifest itself in rulemakings, guidance, examiner training, data collections like our call reports, or other documents that signal NCUA's priorities and approach. That could be our strategic plan, our supervisory priorities, our, our pre-exam questionnaires for credit unions, call reports. All of these things communicate NCUA priorities and can influence behavior. Does any change in any of those communications can have the potential to nudge credit unions towards or away from certain behaviors that may not be in their members' best interest? Let's say the local oil refinery expands and the local credit union has the opportunity to expand membership and lending activity that is indirectly related to the oil and gas business. So this is a good news scenario. The bad news would be shut down and you know the town's in trouble. This is a good news scenario. They're increasing employment. You can foresee a scenario where NCUA's words might give that credit union pause about increased exposure, even indirectly, to the fossil fuel industry. We talk about diversifying field of membership so you're not dependent. This would be the other way around. You come back for your exam the next year and have more exposure for oil and gas indirectly. That NCUA clause reticence could result in harm to those potential new members and to the credit union's finances. Again, it's hypothetical, but I'm just elucidating my apprehension about what might happen in the future. Also, like auto loans, today's RFI mentions the risks related to shift from gasoline-powered vehicles to electric and hybrids. Sure. I worry we might, in theory, ask credit unions for data on the share of their auto lending that's for uh, electric and hybrids. Someone out there might feel this is a nudge, indicating a shift towards those type of vehicles, hybrids and electric, is the better answer, the easier answer, the one that makes your exam go a little quicker. We all know questions where someone's just asking questions, but there's right answers and wrong answers. People want to get the examiner's head nodding, and they get an impression. Meanwhile, these credit unions live and breathe the auto lending markets, 35% of all $2 trillion assets in, in all credit 
this could result um, our efforts, our wording, what we ask for, what we don't ask for, could result in tweaks to loan pricing that make some vehicles more desirable than others. That sort of nudge would interfere with the credit union's ability to price risk in the markets they know best and perhaps give a credit union member a less favorable deal than they otherwise might have gotten. And fourth and lastly, the, all these important issues we're talking about have existing work streams. They deal with climate-related disasters all the time. Farmers have bad crops. There's flooding. And NCUA involvement could dull the market signals that make those work streams fun well. Credit unions are already watching land prices in flood-prone areas. They're watching the constantly shifting insurance markets for homes and vehicles. NCUA already has sensible concentration limits and other regulations. And of course, there's a lot of entities out there who write checks before NCUA's deposit insurance kicks in. We don't insure homes in flood-prone area. We don't insure vehicles there. We insure the deposits. And obviously, there's a connection there, which is why we're talking about this. But there's a lot of Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, crop insurance, homeowners insurance, property casualties. A lot of people writing checks who are focused on these things. So there's a potential here to view climate as a separate works team or an area of regulatory focus that could interfere with the existing process. Some public officials have explicitly said that they would like to have a separate part of the exam that's just on climate, even though I think all of those things, while changing, are embedded in other things. We have camels, six letters. Some people want to be cut camels, climate to be one of them. Okay, and he's about to ask staff who's better to answer questions about a hurricane in Puerto Rico, the people in Puerto Rico or the people in D.C. Staff agrees with him with some caveats, but a couple thoughts. The head nod from the examiner, I totally get what he's saying there. With several of my clients have come up with a statement in my discussions with them, go along to get along. Every time NCUA opens their mouth in exam, you have to decide if you're going to agree and do what they're suggesting disagree and argue with them or be neutral and try and not commit. And the fact is, NCUA starts asking questions about this. They start gathering data like board member Hoffman suggests of an electric or a hybrid or a regular automobile. It's starting to imply something. So that goes along with what I said on the front end. You give an inch, they're going to take a foot. So the fact that you got these questions out there is it is going to lead to something. I don't necessarily think that that something needs to happen. And he talks about unintended consequences. I think there will, at some juncture, be some consequences tied to this. Maybe intentional, maybe unintentional. A couple other things he mentioned is someday NCUA may take action. He mentioned there are people who believe that camels should talk about climate. No way, no how will that happen, in my opinion. It won't go that far, but will there be guidance someday? I believe that there will probably before Chairman Harper's term is up, which is why he's needs to get this first step taken. Lastly, as I'm listening to this, I think ultimately there's a conclusion that's been made, and the way this is written is that that there is climate change, which depending on which side you believe is debatable, but you could argue that this is a conclusion in support of facts. They need the facts. They need to get input so that they can look at that input on the questions that they ask, which are also, in my opinion, a little biased. They're good questions, but if you ask the wrong question, you're going to get the wrong answer. Could this be a situation where this is conclusion looking for facts, which is something that happens in government a lot? You talk about unconscious bias. You could have unconscious bias as it relates to climate change. Either you believe in it or you don't believe in it from where you sit personally, professionally, 
or from a political spectrum. And so this will get influenced. And while it's just a first step and while the board will have to act down the road based on Chairman Harper's commitment to that, this is a first step towards something. All right. I am going to now jump to the next statement from a board member, Rodney Hood. I must say that I certainly believe that climate change is, in fact, an important issue. But as of now, my view is that credit unions know best how to manage and mitigate the risk in their respective communities and not, quite frankly, the NCUA. It is, however, worth noting that the RFI (laughs) does not change any NCUA policy or supervision for climate change. Changing policy will require future board action, as the chairman just enunciated. However, nothing I will say today should constrain me or, quite frankly, lock me into a position one way or another for future action regarding climate change. I'm indeed open to studying this issue more and would like to see the best public policy option prevail. When it comes to future specific action, however, I'd like to see this board adjust the loan maturities for solar loans to 25 years. Current regulations make it hard for credit unions to compete in this dynamic market because of our existing regulations that limit the maturity for solar loans to 15 years. That's just one example. As many of you may know, I am from North Carolina, where I grew up and still like to call it at home. It's also where I began my professional career almost three decades ago, working in commercial lending and community reinvestment, urban renewal, and all those types of things we called it then. A lot of that work focused on affordable housing, small business, substantial outreach to marginalized, low to moderate income communities. I don't think anyone called it stakeholder capitalism back then, but it's essentially what we were focused on then. We were focused on sustainability and impact, issues that are at the center of our discussion today on RFI, so on climate. So you could say that I've been intensely involved in one way or another in the world of stakeholder capitalism from the start of my career. From that standpoint, I've watched as these ideas have spread more widely within the larger business world. I continue to be a strong supporter of the key tenets of stakeholder capitalism, including diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, and ESG goals. And I continue to make the case for these practices because I believe they're the right thing to do, and I believe they're good for business and society. But in my position as a financial services industry regulator, I prefer the go slow approach. And I've sought to encourage these practices without being heavy-handed about it. For instance, when it comes to ESG regulations for credit unions, including climate change, I'm cautious about stepping in with regulatory solutions, and I'm certainly not comfortable with the suggestions that regulations should be forcing a commitment to the ESG framework at this particular moment in time. So I am delighted that those at the board table today have mentioned, Mr. Chairman, that this is not going to result in a rulemaking without a policy by this board. One, though, could even argue that ESG regulation is not urgent at this stage for the system of federally insured credit unions that we currently oversee. We're talking here about smaller, nonprofit, membership-driven financial institutions with a strong mission orientation. As such, their ESG impact simply doesn't compare to publicly traded firms with national or international scale. And I'd even go a step further when I talked about having been a Community Reinvestment Act officer in my early days at a Wall Street company. I don't want to pick on the banks, but they literally have to do a lot of the good deeds that they're doing because of government fiat. 
credit unions are doing a number of things around people helping people. It's in their orthodoxy, it's in their philosophy to do things, whether it be community development, or in my case, when I'm talking today about the things that credit unions are already doing around sustainability. For example, last year, the NCRA approved a charter to establish a new credit union in Lane Deer, Montana, that will provide financial services to a largely Native American population. A credit union in Lane Deer, Montana is not going to have the same concerns as a systemically important global financial institution. So the regulatory needs are going to vary by industry to industry. It's also why I don't get overly exercised about the criticisms of ESG and stakeholder capitalism. The reality is that if these concepts are going to be effective and win wider acceptance, then they must be subjected to critical evaluation and testing. I recently spoke at an event that highlighted the promise and peril of stakeholder capitalism. That gets it exactly right. We need to be looking at these frameworks carefully to assess both their strengths and weaknesses, assessing them on their results and not just on their state of good intentions. I do have a few questions and one is, you mentioned that there were similar RFIs released by other financial regulatory agencies. Could you maybe expound upon what have those agencies done as a result of the responses they received to the RFIs and have they issued any new guidance or regulations? Okay, I'm gonna skip what staff said here, but there are several banking regulators that have issued RFIs, requests for information, but there have been no regulations that have come forward. And that was, I think, the point that, that board member Hood was trying to make there. And next up, we're going to hear again from board member Hood on why he's voting yes while he could conceivably have voted no. And I must say, I could have used all of the rationale that the vice chairman just enunciated regarding why he will not be supporting today's rule. But I, Mr. Chairman, as you may recall, I gave you my word almost a year ago that I would be supporting today's rule because it is a priority that has been quite important for you for quite some time. And I wanted to get my support. So while I could easily have used his rationale, I shan't at the board table because of my word. And my word is my integrity and I cannot turn it on and off like a faucet. So I will, in fact, be supporting this because of the commitment that I made to you. And I hope you recognize that I also am very excited about one of my priorities, and that is you all as part 701-714, financial innovation, the loan participation, eligible obligations, and notes of liquidating credit unions. I certainly hope that we can bring that matter to the board. My office is having ongoing conversations with your office regarding this matter. And where there may be a bit of a reluctance and recalcitrance around giving a definitive date, I remain hopeful, Mr. Chairman, that I can work with you and the Vice Chairman to bring that rule to fruition, just as we've done today with today's climate RFI. That concludes my remarks, and thank you all. Thank you, and I, I very much appreciate and understand the gentleman's concern and the priority that he has placed on the loan participation rule. I can tell you that staff is working diligently and quickly, and I've asked them to work as quickly as possible, but, but making sure that we cover all the points that are needed. Certainly, we could see that no later than September, but if it were ready earlier for July, I would certainly be open to bringing it in July. I know you want to make sure that, that this gets across the finish line sooner rather than later. Yes, Mr. Chairman. Great. Thank you so much. Okay, so what you have there is that on the front end, I had mentioned that this is, you can get see a little bit of the board working together. Board member Hood said a year ago he committed that he's a man of his word. He gave his word and his word is his integrity. He can't turn it on and off like a faucet and that 
his staff had been talking to Chairman Harper's staff. And that's because the executive assistants can talk to each other. They can barter. They can do all that behind the scenes for their board member. They can carry the water for their board member. But if the board wants to deliberate, it has to be done in the sunshine. It has to be done at this board meeting or it can be done by notation vote, but it has to be done by a board action where all three board members have the opportunity to make their statements in public, force an force item to be public because notation votes can only be done notation votes if all three board members are okay with something being a, a notation vote, but that's a story for another day. The two executive assistants, this implies that they have been communicating, and I believe that communication probably went something like this. You could see that Chairman Harper said maybe as soon as July for the rule that you're hoping to get board memberhood on loan patient and obligations. Maybe that'll happen in July, no later than September. There is no board meeting in August. So to me, that's probably what was debated, being debated at the staff level. Can you commit to July to get my vote on this? But to clarify, board member Hood said, I'd already given you my word, but he did then follow that up by making a public statement saying he wants eligible obligations and loan participations done. And again, this is good work by Chairman Hood and Chairman Hood's office to try and get a commitment because it forced Harper to talk about what the window of time might be and committed to no later than September. So that's news. So again, this is good government, the way this has played out. And Hood said that he could have voted no easily, but that he'd given his word and he knows this is important to Harper. However, loan participation is equally as important to Hood. And of course, why that's important timeline-wise is there is no August board meeting. Board member Hood's term is up in August. He could decide to walk away at that point. The Biden administration could relieve him of his duties once the term is up, or you could go another year with no changes in the board. So he knows that time is ticking. He knows that this is an important item to him, which is why he was likely trying to get a commitment for July. So they say there's two things you don't want to see made, that's law and sausage. And this is law actually being made a little bit in the sunshine, and it's it's refreshing. I think the way the board handled this, you get to see someone on the left, someone on the right, and a right person on the right giving a little bit to the person on the left to try and get things done. I'm going to end where I started with a little bit more from Harper and Lynn as they wrap up their comments. Just one other thing, if I could, on on economics. When I was taking my graduate school level economic classes, there were six things you needed for perfect competition. Many buyers, many sellers, low barriers to entry, low barriers to exit, homogeneous product and perfect information. I'm viewing today's discussion and this RFI as ability for us to get to perfect information. Will we ever get to the perfect information? I don't think so, but I also understand that boots on the ground, those who are most local to concerns, often have the best way of, of, of dealing with an understanding. Appreciate that and respect for your graduate study in economics, which scared me a little bit. And again, I'm kind of with Rodney. I, I don't think this is the end of the world, you know, yeah. but I'm going to vote no because of my apprehensions. But what scared me is us discussing, you know, changes in, in the market and, you know, this kind of power is good. And, and this is all interesting, but this isn't for us then. Right? My next car is probably going to be, well, it's definitely going to be a hybrid electric. I've driven a, a Tesla, they're afraid if I could afford one, I'd get one. But was it a year ago and last winter when I think it was 95, there was a huge snowstorm and people stayed overnight in their cars in Virginia? Yeah, uh, Senator Tip came, yep. spent the night oh, with the vehicle. Yep. 
was there for 27 hours. You know, and this is why the discussion should be car buyers and car sellers and car lenders, not us. But if you remember when after 27 hours of being stuck there, you know, freezing in their cars, when it finally cleared up, you could tell who had electric cars because they ran out of power yeah. just like your phone did. And all the other cars went. And Tesla has roadside assistance. They have these trucks that come help you. Tesla's roadside assistance is only gas-powered vehicles. <laughs> so anyway, I don't know. Again, if I could afford a Tesla, I'd buy one today. I think they're very cool. But these back and forth are not discussions for us to be having, you know, the marketplace out there. We don't need to go to a fourth-generation corn farmer and say, do you know a flood or hurt a corn crop? That's my view. Understood. Understood. So um, thank you, everyone, for that robust debate. Is there a motion? I move. All right. Is there a motion? And the chairman had to make his own motion because while Hood will vote for it, he didn't want to make the motion. Again, a little bit of politics there. And I tend to agree with what Houtman just said there about the question about a flood. If you ask if you ask a fourth generational or a third or second or first, for that matter, farmer, if a flood's going to hurt their crops, yes, it's going to hurt their crops. So what have you learned from that? All right. And so, again, this was a, a very informative board meeting from the perspective of where they all are at. I think that this is just a first step, even though they got on the record that there's going to need to be board action for the next step. I was surprised about the volume of the questions and some of the language in the proposal, such as climate change is accelerating and the number and cost of climate-related natural disasters is rising. So N2A doesn't have any scientists that can tell them that, yes, that the increases in natural disasters relates to climate change. And that's something that's still debated in the public right now. So this is, in my view, colored from a Democratic-led organization that definitely believes in climate change. And I'm not saying I agree or disagree. As I said, I'm not on the left. I'm not on the right. I'm in the middle. But looking at the questions, I said earlier, if you ask the wrong questions, you're going to get the wrong answers. And if you ask 38 questions, you are also going to get some information that you can pick and choose from as you build your regulation or you build your policy. I'm not saying that's what they're going to do. I'm just saying this request for information is very detailed. I highly encourage you to get your trade associations to send in a response consistent with what your thoughts are and or send one in yourself. Because again, they have several, several questions. They break it into transition risk and they indicate things like what risk management strategies could credit unions implement to prepare for or minimize the effects of transition risk? And more importantly, that's this is question five on page eight. Is there anything regulators can do to help credit unions address transition risk? That reminds me of the old thing people used to joke about when I came in as an examiner, that people used to show up from the government and say, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. I don't think that was appreciated 30 years ago. And in the world that we're in today, government intervention, there's a lot of mistrust at every level, including a government. NCUA does their best to do a good job, but I'm from the government. I'm here to help you on your climate risk, I think is getting their nose, in my opinion, where it doesn't need to be. And it goes back to what Helpman said about 
who knows things better, the people in Puerto Rico who went through a hurricane or the farmer who goes through floods or some government folks in in Alexandria, Virginia or Washington, D.C. I'll go with the farmer and I'll go with the people in Puerto Rico. They've got questions on operations. And uh, what I starred uh, mostly when I looked through this quickly was the questions that they have on governance. So what role should a credit union's board of directors have in the oversight and analysis of financial risks due to climate change? So didn't say must, but it does say should. So it implies that there should be some sort of role. Do credit unions have board members, committees, or senior management functions that are responsible for climate-related financial risk? If so, please provide examples. What are the top barriers and challenges for credit unions in designing board members, committees, and or senior management functions to be responsible for climate-related financial risk? So going back to what board member Hauptman said, this implies that those boards should be looking at it. So if board member was going to bring this to their strategic plan of a credit union, it's already out there. If NCUA starts talking about this to a board, they're going to try and make NCUA happy. So again, give an inch, take a foot. And these governance questions, I think, are a bit loaded on one side. Business strategies. How should credit unions consider climate-related financial risks and development business strategies? How about instead of how should, should credit unions consider? How do these risks impact product and service offerings? Do credit unions have sufficient expertise or are they aware of and have an understanding of the tools and resources necessary to address the financial risks and opportunities associated with climate change and their impact on credit union performance? It's still debated in our country on what needs to be done, what should be done, what's actually happening, are changes in the volume of natural disasters related to climate change, or is it just something that, of where we're at in the universe? So to expect credit unions to have this, I think, is a little bit over the line of where I think NCUA's role should be, but that doesn't matter. What are your thoughts? Are you going to make your thoughts known? Because if you disagree with these things and don't think NCUA should be involved and don't think certain things need to be done by your credit union, you should comment on that and you should make sure that NAFQ and CUNA do as well. And I'm sure that NAFQ and CUNA uh, will be on this like a full court press in basketball. Another question, do credit unions take steps to assess, reduce, or mitigate its climate impact? If your credit union does not currently consider climate change in analyzing its existing risk factors, do you anticipate doing so. I believe that 90-some percent of credit unions don't take this into consideration right now. If you disagree with that, shoot me a message, and I'd love to get you on to talk about this on my podcast. Do credit unions have sufficient understanding of the climate-related risk management process? So that presumes there is a climate-related risk management process. Again, these questions lead the witness. These questions are going to lead to guidance. It's going to lead to policy and or regulation. You can read it in the volume of questions. You can read it in how the questions are written. Again, there are people who are trained on how to write surveys so they're not, not biased. And these questions, in my opinion, are biased towards leading to answers that will support regulations, that will support guidance. Again, that's just my take. They have a section on reporting and targets. I Let's see, I circled something here on page 14. The NCUA understands 
the financial risks of climate change is an evolving field and new to some credit unions. Earlier, I said probably 90% are dealing with it. It's, it's more than new to some credit unions. It's new to most, if not all, credit unions. And then question 35, should the NCUA modify its examination procedures and supervisory posture in relation to climate-related financial risk? This would be including, but not limited to, Flood Disaster Protection Act, disaster preparedness reviews, CAMELS ratings and assessments of the level and direction of the various areas of risk. They are asking you if this should be part of the examination process. If you don't think so, you need to comment and you vote early and vote often, vote for yourself, influence NAFQ, influence CUNA, but get your comments in because they're going to, they're going to have to consider them, but with 40 some questions here that are painted in one direction, they're going to get enough information that if a Democratic board decides this is what they want to do, this is what they'll do. But get your comments in so you can slow it down, go slow, like Hood said, or so you can get it influenced so that when this regulation or guidance does come out, that it's done so in a reasonable way that doesn't create too much regulatory burden, because I know that there's a lot going on in credit unions that you might rather focus on. All right, that's it. This is Mark Treichel. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a little bit different than some of my others because I wanted you to get the real flavor of the board because this was the best back and forth from three different sides from a board that I've seen in a while and I thought it was worthy of including other statements. Have a great day, Mark Treichel, signing off with Flying Colors. Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktrichel.com. 